Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The CV CV Report. TPS Report. The CV Report. Give us one word to describe what you're going through right now. Sucky. Sucky. Yeah. <laughs> Look, any self-respecting veteran should grow a beard and have a belly. That's the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Like, if we're going to start getting angry now, it's it's a little late. Is live in D.C. with the update on all of this. Good morning. Maybe. I guess not. The CV Report. Welcome to the CV Report. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and this episode features a lot. Presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke is floating the idea of a war tax. It's time to pay for these wars as we fight them and to ensure that those families who do not have U.S. service members pay their fair share as well. So what do veterans think about that? It's just too much of hindsight. We'll get a reaction from AMVET's executive director, Joe Shinelli. <laughs> Are we really paying this backward? The situation with Iran is still heating up. Former CIA counterterrorism officer and filmmaker Dan Gabriel shares some scary truths about this radical regime and the Iranian fighters he documented during the liberation of Mosul. Well, we know this is not out of character for the Iranian regime that they've funded billions of dollars of terrorism over, over the last 20, 30 years. And from the war of words with Iran to the war on weed on Capitol Hill, ConnectingVets.com reporter Abby Bennett shares with us details about what an Oregon congressman recently did and how it's not helping veterans get cannabis anytime soon. You know, Phil, I think that's the big question, and I think that's a question that a lot of uh, members of Congress want a clear answer on as well. It's all ahead on The CV Report. The CV Report is sponsored by Radio.com, the free app that gives you access to hundreds of FM radio stations from around the country, thousands of podcasts, all in a free, user-friendly, curated platform. And also on the Radio.com app is the podcast, To War and Back. To War and Back documents the lives of three combat vets. It's combat and crashes. A doctor-prescribed combat cocktail resulting in a warfighter overdose. Suicide. Friendship. Cannabis. Science. And how to survive even the darkest of journeys. Their journey is incredible. And it's all on the podcast, To War and Back. Now, let's start with Iran. Obviously, things are heating up. We had drones shot down. Sanctions are tightening. A war of words. In fact, just today, Iran warned that new U.S. sanctions that are targeting its supreme leader and other top officials meant closing the doors of diplomacy between Tehran and Washington. In fact, they even went so far as to say that President Trump is afflicted by mental retardation. President Hassan Rouhani went on to call the actions against the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei outrageous and idiotic. 
And then as I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed, I couldn't help but notice a comment, a share, from a guest we've had on the show before. Former CIA counterterrorism officer and filmmaker Dan Gabriel. Now, we recently made the documentary Mosul, which covers the Iraqi military efforts to liberate the city of Mosul from the grips of ISIS. He's been up close and personal with Iranian fighters, and his insight into this radical regime can certainly tell us something about what's going on right now and where it might be headed. So, Dan Gabriel, you've covered these Iranian-backed militias. You've seen their fighting forces up close, firsthand. Talk to me. Absolutely. Well, Mosul is is like an onion. I mean, there's so so many different levels to it. To be quite honest with you, uh, when I was filming in October 2016, uh, even all the way up through July 2017, which was the quote-unquote victory over ISIS, you know, we were we were looking at this as as really the last battle of the Iraq War. So it was very much an Iraqi story. It was very much uh, focused on ISIS uh, because they obviously were, were front and center in the conflict and, and just, uh, you know, the, the, the terrible um, evil and atrocities that were, that were going on. So that was obviously taking our attention. But the further we got into the story and, and learned uh, more about the different characters and, and the groups uh, that they came from, what we realized is that ISIS was actually only a symptom of the much larger disease that the Middle East faces. And that is a sectarian conflict between Sunni and Shia, or really more accurately, I would say, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is kind of the political context uh, that this, that this uh, conflict is, is taking place over. You mean to say that some of the fighters on the ground that we were facing may have been or were Iranian? Well, they were certainly funded by the Iranians. We know that. We even have that on camera when Oman Hadi uh, makes mention that, you know, sometimes the paychecks don't come in on time. Well, that's exactly what she's talking about is, is funding from the Iranians, uh, which is really strange because she is a Sunni. Uh, but again, this is uh, the Hashda Shabi is, is basically started off as a Shia group. Uh, it grew to basically they had different brands of it that had Sunni and uh, other sectarian uh, branches of it. But it was essentially started as an Iranian influence uh, militia. So we know that she was on their payroll and, and we know that uh, she effectively used their weapons and equipment and training and supplies to, to have um, some tactical success in, in uh, what she was involved with. Uh, but really, again, the, the, the larger story here is what else uh, have the Iranians been doing in the region? And the fact of the matter is, going back to 2003, they've been expanding their influence all across the region. And we can include Yemen, and Syria, and Lebanon, really in a, in a kind of what they call the Shia Crescent. And, you know, certainly when we failed to negotiate the Status of Forces Agreement in 2000, I guess it was 14 or 13, you know, that's, that's when ISIS was able to, to fill the vacuum. Um, and that's that's when they grew grew into a force to be reckoned with, and ultimately the, the Shia uh, or the the, the Iranian backed Shia then at that point increased their influence and their leverage, and, and hence the conflict that we saw unfold uh, in 2016. And this is something you were tracking long before you tracked it for the film. You were doing this as part of your work as a CIA counterterrorism officer. You had actually seen this, and the Iranian desk was heavily involved in observing some of the some of the hateful activities the Iranians were funding. Right. Well, and, and we know even in the early days of the, of the Iraq war that uh, the Iranians were funding uh, EFPs, which is uh, explosively flown projectiles, which are doing a serious uh, number on our troop convoys. Um, and certainly some of the militias, especially in Baghdad and Basra, were absolutely funded by them. Uh, we know this is not out of character for the Iranian regime, that they've funded you know billions of dollars of terrorism over, over the last 20, 30 years. 
Now, I don't want to veer off too far into the lane of speculation, but with your expertise, I'm dying to know, why did we ever decide to repatriate funds to them and sign a nuclear proliferation agreement, which basically handed them hundreds of millions of dollars of cash and just said, hey, we're going to now send inspectors into your country every so often and make sure you're not doing anything bad. If this was the case, going back all the way to the early 2000s, why the hell did we even entertain that idea? Many people are asking that exact question right now. Uh, we also know that with the Trump administration's decision to essentially reverse that and re- reinstate the sanctions, that's why we see the uh, increased tension in the region right now, because Iran is, uh, is reacting to, um, to the rollback of, of that, uh, those relationships that the Obama administration had established. So there, there's definitely a level of brinksmanship that's being played here. Uh, between the Mullahs and, and our administration, uh, and we're going to have to see where that goes. I, I want to go back to what, the question you asked me about, you know, are, are Iranians uh, pictured in the film in Mosul? And the answer is yes, they are. So again, the Hash the Shabby or the PMUs, it's called Popular Mobilization Front or Popular Mobilization Units. Um, you know, just what we saw last week with the attack in Basra on the ExxonMobil facility, uh, there was an attack in Mosul, a Katusha rocket attack, this is this is the work of some of the very same groups that are pictured in in the film Mosul as being quote unquote the good guys because they're fighting ISIS. And again, it's what what we get at in the film, which is to say nothing is what it seems. Everything is much more complicated. And although these groups are united uh, and seem peaceful and allied, and, and we hear kind of the company line that sectarianism is dead and buried, we know that these groups, the, the Iranian-backed Shia, the Sunni, the Yazidis. The Christians are, it's just a matter of time before kind of fall into old ways. Wow. So the very people that could have been aligned with our interests to rid Mosul of ISIS could be the very people that are uh, doing some of this stuff in the Gulf of Oman. Yeah, uh, 100%. It's, it's not only plausible, it's, it's likely. And I'm not so sure about the Gulf of Oman, but if you could go up to, again, to Mosul uh, on the ground, You've got a question, you know, who would launch these Katusha rockets uh, at essentially the, the, the Iraqi military base where the U.S. forces, where at least some U.S. support elements were stationed? You've got two options. It was either ISIS or is the Iranian-backed uh, militia. And the more likely answer is that it was the Iranian-backed militias. Wow. Now, talk to me tactically. If you do feel or if this, if the world does coalesce and begin to feel that there are interests, these smaller uh, what you call it, the PMU, these smaller sort of um, militant groups that are funded by Iran, um, if we wanted to eliminate those types of threats and create peace in the Gulf of Oman and, 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 and create safe shipping lanes, how do, you, how do you swat hundreds of flies? I mean, how do you find them? How do you do that? Well, the first question is, is whether that's a good idea, because uh, really this, a conflict with Iran is almost certainly not going to be contained within Iraq, Iran. Now, first of all, we can look at what, we, what would happen within Iraq. It would be that the country would be completely destabilized and uh, return to a, really a state of civil war, probably greater than we've seen since the invasion. Uh, and then the next thing we have to look at is the, the, the near region, so Yemen and Syria and Lebanon, what would likely happen in there, as well as Afghanistan. Uh, with with Iranians' influence, and then of course there there are capabilities that the Iranians have overseas, whether in Europe or South America or elsewhere. 
And I just heard about uh, cyber defenses being at a heightened state of readiness right now because they do have that ability. I mean, we're talking about a modernized country here. It's not just, uh, you know, a bunch of renegade jihadists in a cave. Yeah, this, you know, this is not going to look, I mean, God forbid that we end up getting into uh, some type of a military conflict with Iran, but this is, this is not going to look like, um, our, our, you know, the conflict with Iraq. This, this is going to be much more uh, lethal, I would, I would expect. Hmm. Last question, and just kind of making it all make sense to me here. When you talk about the overall global pillars of this problem, uh, you know, you've got, as you'd mentioned, Iran and the Shia interests, and then you've got the Saudis and the Sunnis. They're not neighbors. They're not fighting over a land or a territory. What is it between those two nations? Well, it, it could be as simple as uh, just the, the political conflict that exists between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, and that, that happens to be my view, and that the, the religious drapings of all of this are, are kind of um, added to the mix. But, you know, if, if you look at the geopolitical intentions of Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, they, you know, they're in con- they are in conflict over water resources, over oil resources, over nuclear weapons, uh, over influence at large in the region. And then, of course, underlying all of that is the fact that the, each country respectively represents, you know, one of the large uh, wings of, of, uh, of Islam. And this is a split that's that's been around uh, for, for as long as Islam has. But more than just religion and more than just that interpretation of the Quran, you're saying like there's a political and an economic interest that these two countries are fighting over. I mean, there's no way to solve that. There's not there's not a way for the oil community and for commerce to uh, I, I don't want to say level the playing field. But I mean, there's no way you know, both that, countries that's a, can that's win. A great question. Yeah. You know, we, we hear often about the Arab Israeli uh, peace settlements. I mean, going back to the 50s or the 60s, and um, attempts to have uh, either bipartisan or multipartisan uh, negotiations to, to bring peace to the region. But we never really think about that when we talk about Saudi Arabia or Iran and actually addressing the root cause of the conflict. So, yeah, maybe that's something that we need to be thinking about. Hmm. Amazing. And amazing to see how wide these roots have spread and are rooted in conflicts, not only that you've covered with the documentary film Mosul, but uh, with your work as a CIA counterterrorism officer. Um, Not just the layers of the onion that is Mosul, but the layers of the onion that is the Middle East. And uh, I'm afraid to peel Uh, any more back. I really am, Dan. (laughs) You never know what you're going to get. Thank you for shining a light on this, and I hate to say it, but I'm going to have to have you back because it doesn't look like this story's going away. And in fact, again, I think the layers of the onion continue to get peeled back. Um, I'm going to have you here to come back and help me understand it all. We'll do it anytime, Phil. All right, next up, we'll talk about a war tax. In a story that ran earlier this week on ConnectingVets.com, Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke is pledging to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and help create a federal health care fund to cover the costs of caring for those who serve in future wars by taxing those who don't. The former Texas congressman unveiled his proposal on Monday before attending a Veterans Roundtable in Tampa, Florida. The new health care fund would be paid for using a, quote, war tax, ensuring Americans not serving share some of the same cost of going to war according to their means. When he spoke with NBC News, here's a little bit of what he had to say about it. 
after we've ended the wars that we're already in, we're going to make sure that we understand the full cost and consequence of going to those wars. It's not just deploying the women and men, the missiles and the bombs. It's their care when they come back. I'll give you an example. It took us 40 years to recognize exposure to Agent Orange as a presumptive condition for the cancers that Vietnam-era veterans were dying of. It's more than 28 years since we first heard about Gulf War Syndrome, and we have yet to fully pay the cost for the research and the innovation and the care for those who served in those wars. The toxic burn pits in Afghanistan, in Iraq. I want to make sure that before we go into the next war, we've set aside a fund, a Veterans Trust Fund, that will pay for the care of those who have borne the battle in those wars. Now, again, the devil's in the details, and O'Rourke's plan, when you look at it closer, lists some of the specifics. Households making less than $30,000 per year would pay $25. Those making under forty grand a year would pay $57. Households bringing in less than one hundred grand would pay $270. Those making less than two hundred grand would pay $485. And those making more than $200,000 would pay a flat $1,000. But what do veterans think about that? So we turned to the Veterans Service Organization, AMVETS, and got the word from Executive Director Joe Chanelli. Joe, how you doing, man? Never better, Phil. How are you? I'm good, buddy. I'm good. I know your Veteran Service Organization does so much uh, as far as lobbying and does so much in the defense of veterans. As I just laid that out, what do you think, man? Do you think a war tax? I mean, I know World War II, we sold war bonds. I know the country's often gotten behind military members and, 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 and paid an extra. What do you think of this? And with war bonds, of course, they were able to get some of that money back. Uh, I have a lot of concerns about it. I, I do think it's important that the American public understands the financial cost of the wars. Um, we are, despite the fact that we, the, the overall population of veterans has been declining for the past two decades, we uh, have all-time high spending. The VA does uh, take up about $200 billion of the federal budget, which is, of course, already funded completely by taxpayers. Um, I worry that you could end up having this um, building some resentment in the general public for veterans. Uh, veterans have very high support right now. But you start hitting them in the, their pocketbook and telling them that they have to um, take extra money out. And I think we already pay, just personally me, I think I already pay a lot in taxes. Um, but I, I also at the same time think that American society becomes more uh, more involved, more invested in, in our military if they have to make sacrifices. Uh, you know, in, in the past, you know, they had to not use their metal or ration f- fuel for their vehicles. Those types of things really did spur real investment, and it gave everyone the sense that they were all, you know, contributing to the war effort. Um, of course, now we've also had this war that's not that politically popular anymore. People are pretty tired of the forever war. Yeah, and that gets me to kind of my next question is, what are your thoughts among your constituents? Are you hearing from, you know, at your national gatherings and such, other AMVETS members, other members of other posts? Are are, are they expressing a desire to stop the war on terrorism or to stop our involvement specifically in Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, it, it's generational. Um, we do definitely hear that from our post-9-11 veterans, that they feel that this war has run its course, that maybe it's 
lost its focus. Um, and I say it as if a war could have focus. I, I guess I mean the, the general public doesn't seem to have a, a real understanding. A, a lot of those men and women who are fighting in the war now weren't even alive when those planes hit the buildings and when they hit the Pentagon. Uh, you know, it's a whole generation ago now, and it's kind of embarrassing for me to kind of age myself. You know, I was there in Afghanistan in the, the very first wave in, uh, and that was 18 years ago. Uh, so a lot of things have changed there, and, you know, the mindset of today's veteran is you know, d- does wonder if it's all worthwhile. But I, I would say the veterans are not shy about their willingness to to sacrifice, and obviously they already have, but they continue to, and um, often they're no longer in uniform and no longer serving in that capacity because of age or health, um, but they're always looking for other ways to be able to serve and to continue, you know, continue contributing to the mission, continuing to keeping our country safe. So I don't think, but again, I'd want to really check with them. I don't think they would have a serious problem with it on that sense if this is was determined that's what it was needed. I think probably a, one of the earlier, probably initial pushback would be, you know what, we have so much wasteful spending in the federal government, use that instead. But, um, you know, and I guess the other question is, are we, it's just too much of hindsight. Are we now seeing how much that the forever war has cost and is going to continue to cost for the next you know, 40 to 50 years, um, are we really paying this backward? Um, or or would it really have the impact that uh, Mr. O'Rourke wants for moving forward and being more conscious of the real cost of war? Which, by the way, the real cost of war is much, much more than than money. It's, it, it's human. That's the real cost of war, in my opinion. All right, now our next story is sure to piss off any proponents of pot. And I have to say, it's something we've covered before. Here to talk with us about it is Connecting Vest reporter Abby Bennett. And how are you, Abby? I'm great, Phil. How are you? Good. Didn't see you in the office the other day because you were on the Hill and you came back with this story about an amendment allowing VA doctors to work with veterans uh, in their medical marijuana usage. Uh, to advise them, to discuss it with them, and the amendment giving them the ability to do that in states where POTS legal got pulled. How the heck did that happen? So Representative Blumenauer pulled his amendment that would have been included in the VA's spending package for the year. Um, He pulled it because the VA has stood firm and said that it doesn't matter what Congress will do. They will not allow their doctors to be involved in the medical marijuana process for veterans until the DEA or the DOJ declassify marijuana as a Schedule One drug. They say it's to protect their doctors, um, but at the end of the day, they say the VA doctors will not be advising veterans, even in states where medical marijuana is legal. Now, I don't want to have you speak for the VA because, uh, frankly, I'd like them to speak for themselves on this, and uh, we will reach out to them. Uh, what is the reason that the VA doesn't want VA doctors, even in states where it's legal, to work with their veterans, their patients, on using cannabis for something like chronic pain or you know, to treat a, a, a debilitating um, PTSD situation where they can't sleep? I mean, wh- why don't they want? To touch it. 
You know, Phil, I think that's the big question, and I think that's a question that a lot of um, members of Congress want a clear answer on as well, um, because, you know, the VA has also been authorized to uh, conduct studies on medical marijuana and its uses for veterans on things like chronic pain and post-traumatic stress disorder, and those studies were not completed. And now, you know, it's bipartisan. Republicans and Democrats um, at a hearing last week were firm, you know, however they have to do it, they are going to pass legislation that requires the VA to study it. And so it's really unclear why there is so much sort of pushback um, from VA on those pieces of legislation. Specifically in your article from ConnectingVets.com, you quote Representative Blumenauer, Democrat from Oregon, as saying um, all of a sudden the VA has decided, well, that would put their doctors at risk. Now, is he saying that the doctors at the VA or the VA is saying that their doctors might be arrested for doing this? The VA has maintained that as long as marijuana is a Schedule One substance, there's a potential that their doctors could be held accountable if something were to go wrong. And there haven't been many details shared on exactly how their doctors could be held accountable or how that could endanger them legally. Um, but that has been the position that the VA has maintained. But if they made a law, you and I were just chatting about this over coffee. I mean, there's two places in the government where you can actually make a make something legal, right? It's the Supreme Court of the United States and Congress can make a law. So they could literally just write the law that said in states where it's legal, VA doctors cannot be put in jail. And there have been several pieces of legislation, several bills put forward by both parties that would do just that. But the VA has pushed back and said that they would not support those bills. Um, and there's been some trouble uh, for lawmakers even just working with the VA on those bills. And I think from the perspective of the lawmakers, they really are trying to bring VA to the table and work with them to make sure that the legislation would work out and be easy for doctors and veterans. Um, but I think that there's a conflict there in exactly how they want those things done. And the VA has maintained they don't want them done right now. And until that happens, Abby Bennett will be storming the halls of Congress looking for answers. Always a pleasure to have you on. Appreciate it. And you can find your writing at ConnectingVets.com. Where do I find you on Twitter? At Abby, A-B-B-I-E-R, Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. -T. Nice. Some N's and some T's in there right on. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Phil. All-Star Closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.